You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So I want to dedicate this year, first of all, to the health and the Rafur Shlema of all those who, um, who are not well, uh, specifically with the coronavirus. Some of them are people we know, people we don't know, people who themselves don't know. Um, we have some work to do to figure out what it is that Hashem wants of us in all of these goings-on. I also want to uh, dedicate this year in memory of my uncle, whose Yorze was today. He was uh, really one of the finest human beings I ever knew, really an incredible human being. Mentioned every sense of the word, defined the word integrity. His name was um, Chaim Ephraim, but of Shimon Alter Yitzchak. They should be Lui Nishmato. So, I once, um, there was a fellow who I grew up with. He was a, a Holocaust survivor. His name was uh, Moshe Chaim Tiefenbrunn. And he was, uh, he was uh, just an amazing human being. He was really the first Holocaust survivor that I met, that I knew, or that I knew I knew. And... When he first came to Lincoln Square, he was actually one of the people that taught me Nusach. He was a Baltfila, um, along with Sherwood Gaffin, and he always walked around with the Gemara under his arm. He was one of Bucky and Shas, a tremendous Tamil Chacham. I believe he was the one who started the Dafyomi, the Gemara Shirim in, 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 in Lincoln Square Synagogue, in the show I grew up in. Um, and there's a story about him that was known in the shul. When Rav Riskin started Lincoln Square Synagogue, it was a shul in a small apartment on Lincoln Towers in Manhattan. And um, it's a long story how it was actually originally a conservative congregation. How it turned into an Orthodox synagogue is a story worthy of stories, but that's not for tonight. So when, you know, they got to their first Yom Kippur, he needed a baltila for Yom Kippur. Now, Moshchayim, you know, he, he davened regularly for the Ahmed. He davened the beautiful Musaf. So Ravriskin asked him if he would daven, you know, for the Yomad, for Yom Kippur. And he said, no. And Ravriskin was somewhat surprised. Like, what do you mean? Well, why won't you daven? He says, no. And he walked away. Well, Ravriskin wasn't the man to be easily put off. So he started pestering Moshchayim Tifabun. Listen, we don't have anybody else. I know you have beautiful Nusach. Why won't you do it? And he kept after him until finally at one point... Mr. Tiefenbun turned around to Rav Riskin. Remember, Mr. Tiefenbun was a Holocaust survivor. He was already, you're talking about uh, the 19, late 1960s. So he was a man who was already, you know, 50, 55. And Rav Riskin at that point was a young rabbi. I mean, he was like, you know, a year or two out of smicha. He was 27, 26. He was a youngster, right? And uh, so he turned around to him and he said, I'm not going to daven on, on Yom Kippur because I don't fast on Yom Kippur. And that's the end of it. And off he walked. So Riskin was a little taken aback. I mean, this is the person who started the Gemara's year. He wore tzitzis. He came to Minyan every day. He was stark and shy. He doesn't fast on Yom Kippur. So Riskin certainly wasn't going to let that go. So he kept after him until finally he told him his story. And he said, you don't understand. He said, I was married. And I had a wife and two children. And then the Nazis invaded Poland. 
And we were sure that the Polish army could withhold the Nazis. They had just lost in World War I. But it wasn't to be. And it took only a few weeks until we realized that this was bad. I believe it took six weeks for the Poles to surrender. And a few days later, they heard that the Germans, the German army was coming to their village. They were in a small shtetl outside of Warsaw. So what did you do? If you were a Jew, and it was 1939, and you were married, and you had little kids, you understood what was about to happen. The ones who were at risk were the men. They might take you to a work detail. They might take you to the army. Who knew what they would do? So he and all the other young men in the town who were at risk ran off into the forest. They never made it back to town because the Germans surrounded the area and eventually they hid out of the forest and eventually he made his way across Europe and he managed to, to eventually get to Shanghai. And in Shanghai, he waited out the war. And on the day that they declared victory over Germany, what's known as VE Day, Victory Over Europe Day, in May of 1945, on that exact day, Moshe Chaim found out what had happened to his wife and children. They were rounded up by the Nazis. They were taken off into the forest. And after being beaten and tortured, they were shot and thrown in a ditch. And he discovered on the way, and in, in a way, as painful as an experience is, if you're in pain, when everyone around you is celebrating, that makes the pain even greater. And he said, I had to find a way to respond to that. I wasn't the type who could just leave Judaism. But I had to tell God that something was wrong. So that's my act of rebellion. I won't fast on Yom Kippur. He owes me an explanation. Now Ravriskin being Ravriskin, it took him a couple more weeks. Moshe Chaim Tifun Davin for the Yamadet Yom Kippur. To this day, I don't know what he said to him. And I don't know how that transpired, but I know that happened. And I know because I grew up listening to Moshe Chaim Tifun Shachris and to his Nusach. Many, many years later, when Ravriskin came to Israel and he started the community that is today the city of Hevrat, one of the first families to come was Moshe Chaim Tifun. Moshe Chaim Tifun survived the war, eventually made his way to New York, opened up a business, managed to meet someone special, married her. They had two sons. She was also a survivor. But that story was always there in the background. Many years later, I'm in Efrat. And it was Yom HaShoah. And in Efrat, like in all Israeli cities, there's a memorial service on the night of Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Memorial Day. And that particular year, I was in Efrat. This is long, long, long before Araita. I was a young married couple. And I went to the Yom HaShoah ceremony. And it was called, I think, for 7.30. Then I made the cardinal mistake of arriving at 7.30. At 7.30, if you're an Israeli 7.30, it was me and Moshe Chaim Tifumun, And nobody else was there. It, it would fill up by 8 o'clock, but nobody else was there. There's a siren. So I'm sitting there next to Mr. Tifumun, and I'm trying to make conversation. And I said to him, this must be, by this time he was 90 years old, this must be so difficult for you. Yom HaShoah, to bring all this up again. And he looked at me, and he said, Baha'i Lashem, in this language, he said, bring it up again. 
said, I haven't slept through the night, a single night, since 1939. I've had nightmares every night since 1939. It blew my mind. I didn't even know what to say. Now this is a person who walked around with a smile on his face. This is a person who had a lot of joy in his life. Had a lot of nachas from his children. Not a single night. Carried it with him. So in response to that moment is this idea. Parashat Kitisa. What is the central story of Parashat Kitisa? Chaita Ego. Chaita Ego is... It's an absurd event. This is not the guy who loses God in 1945 in the darkness of the valley of death. This is a group of people who seem to lose God at the foot of Harsinai. I mean, they experienced Hashem directly. They heard Hashem's voice. They saw whatever Mount Sinai, whatever that Sinaitic experience was, they experienced it. They called out, we will do, we will hear. We, we celebrate Shavuot based on that moment. And six weeks later, they're having an orgy of idolatry. It's a crazy story. And there are all sorts of discussions about exactly what went wrong. Now, there's, a, there's an idea that comes out of the Zohar. It says there, Altikre Egel. Don't call it a calf. Ela Igul, a circle. There's an idea in Kabbalah that, that the issue is not where was God. It's not that they forgot that Hashem was. You couldn't forget God. Their question was, what do you do the day after you know with absolute certainty that Hashem exists? How do you, how do you relate to that? And so they were, they were seeking to create some sort of tangible form, some way to experience Hashem in the world. And what is the igul, which relates to the egel? The igul is the perfect circle. It's as close to perfection as you get to into this world. They were trying to see, how do you relate to Hashem in this world? Okay, that's one possibility, right? There's a whole discussion. Was there difficulty with Moshe Rabbeinu? Moshe is up on Mount Sinai. It's 40 days. They're so dependent on him. They need some tangible form to be dependent on. In fact, there's a, there's a powerful Rambam, which I was looking for and I found. It's a Rambam in the Murnavuchim, the Rambam, in the Guide to the Perplexed, Maimonides, suggests that there is something very unique that happens when Moshe comes on the scene. <laughs> Because if you think about it, up until the time of Moshe, by the way, this is in Chelek uh, Aleph. Chelek Aleph, the first section of the Rambam, the Mornabuchim, is really a dictionary. He really goes through all the different terms and ideas. He says, before we can have dialogue, we have to define them. If we're going to talk about, I don't know, man created in the image of God, what does it mean? What's an image of God? If we're going to talk about, you know, what is Ava? What does it mean? Right? And, and some of it is very difficult, but it's an incredible sort of journey to study the first section of the Rambam. Only in Chela Gimel, in the third section, does he begin to get into the deeper philosophical ideas. So it's surprising to find this in the first section. This is in Parak Samach Gimel. And he say, talks basically about the fundamental change that occurs when Moshe comes on the scene. Because up until Moshe came along, says the Rambam, 
God never, no individual ever communicated with the masses and said to them, God spoke to me and I have a message for you. In Avram's entire life, you never see Vaydaber Hashem and Avram Lemor. You never find that word. Right? What does the word Lemor mean? <coughs> Why does it say Vaydaber Hashem and Moshe Lemor? Why doesn't it just say Vaydaber Hashem and Moshe? And God spoke to Moshe. What is the Lemor? The Kina Sofrim of Hanania Kaziz, and there are many commentaries who point this out, suggests you can find this on the beginning of the Ten Commandments in Shmot. He says basically, <coughs> excuse me, Lemur is that Hashem tells Moshe something in order for him to tell it. Who's he supposed to tell it to? Us. Hashem never came to Avram and said he has anybody to tell it to. Avram just developed his relationship with God. It was only when Moshe came along that somebody brought Nivuah, brought the concept of prophecy, to a larger group. So they became connected to Moshe. Moshe became the vehicle through which they connected to Hashem. With Moshe gone, how did they connect to Hashem? But I want to focus on a different piece. There's a fascinating detail in the whole story of Cheta Ego, the sin of the golden calf. But if you take a close look at it, begs a question. So Moshe's up on Sinai. God says, Lech re, get down, the people have become destructive, right? Achaleotam karega, I'm going to destroy them. Moshe starts to argue with God. And finally, Moshe Kaviachal somehow convinces God. I'm not going to get into how that works. Hashem, Hashem seems to relent. Hashem sees what Moshe has done and recognizes that the Jewish people are somehow worthy of a different path. So now Moshe's up on the mountain. God has accepted that the Jewish people will survive. But we're not done yet. Because the Jewish people are still down there in an orgy. Now this is, by the way, a fascinating question that we will not get to tonight. How did Moshe succeed in averting destruction when the Jewish people were still in the midst of an orgy of idolatry? And that's actually why Moshe has to go back up again for another 40 days. But okay. Vayifen, this is Paraglalik Bat Tedvav. 15th verse of the 32nd chapter. <coughs> Excuse me. Vayifen. Vayered Moshe minahar. Moshe turns. By the way, that's not just a physical turn. Torah doesn't waste words. Torah doesn't have to tell me you have to turn around. What do you think Vayifen means? What do you mean? Vayifen. Vayered Moshe minahar. Why does it say Vayifen? What does Vayifen mean? Anybody know? But why does that tell me he turned? In order for Moshe to begin the journey of fixing the problem of the Jewish people, he has to turn away from where he is. I want you to understand this. Right? Moshe is all the way up there. He's as high as a human being could ever be. And the Jewish people are all the way down there. They're at their nadir. They're in the midst of, of idolatry and, and a sexual orgy. I mean, if you read between the lines and you study the Gemara, this is a very difficult... The disparity is tremendous. The Meshachachmer of Meir Sumchavin says, if Moshe Rabbeinu is all the way up there, and the Jewish people are all the way down there, something's wrong. And a true leader has to be willing <coughs> to step away. If you want to clean up the mud, says the Baal Shem you've got to be willing to get dirty. You want to make a difference in the world? Understand you're going to pay a price for it. 
So he turns away from his high level. He has to take a journey down. Now it gets interesting. And the two tablets of testimony, what we call the luchot, right, the tablets, are in his hand. Luchot ktuvim. They're somehow written on both sides. There's a floating middle of the Samech and all these miracles that the rabbis discuss. The tablets are fashioned by no less than God Himself. Hashem has created this. And the writing, the engraving in the stone is done by God. Charuta luchot, engraved on the luchot. So Moshe takes these tablets and he walks down the mountain. Ask me. Ask me an obvious question. Now I know from Purim you know that, right? Ask me an obvious question. No. That's true. That's an obvious question. No. Moshe is going down off the mountain and he takes the luchot in his hands. By the way, Take a look at this. What does God say to Moshe? He says to him, right? Um, that the people that you brought in Egypt have been destructive. They're off the path, they're off the derech. That's the original off the derech, right? They made a calf, a masked calf. They're, they're distancing themselves. They're hiding ourse- themselves from us. Right? By the way, something for you to research. This is the first time we find the concept of a mask. Okay? It's on the beginning of the journey that will ultimately result in the second luchot of forgiveness, which are given when? When we get those on Yom Kippur. And the beginning of that journey starts with a mask. And on Purim, we wear masks. There's something very deep. Look at this Fasemis, you'll find something deep, but okay. Right? So Moshe knows that they're having some kind of issue with a golden calf, right? Agreed? So it says. The people have become destructive. Moshe also knows that it's so bad that God wants to destroy the Jewish people. Okay, this is not a guy who's in the middle of Dafyomi and he turns on Netflix. We're not talking about a little Bittel Toro with an egg up. We're talking about pure, raw idolatry at the foot of Harsinai. And Moshe goes down the mountain with the tablets in his hand. Ask me an obvious question. Not how. Why did you bring the tablets with him? What's he going to do with the tablets? Give him a message. Okay, we have to figure out what that is. What's he going to do? We know what he's going to do. What's he going to do? He's going to destroy them. Ask me another obvious question. How could you destroy what a curse particle created? I mean, this has to be the worst moment in Jewish history. To take luchot. I mean, could you imagine? You know, imagine if, uh, I don't know, um, uh, the guys get all excited and they find that there's a, a, a bookshop and they're, they're, or what, what's the name of that the auction house? Um, Christie's, I think, right? Whatever you call it, right? The, the auction house. They're auctioning off a page of the Rambam. Handwritten of the Rambam. And you see this in the newspaper. And you look at the page of the handwritten of the Rambam, and you see that it says, right? And 
And you say, oh my gosh, it's not just the page of the Rambam. It's the beginning of Hilchoteos. <laughs> oh my gosh! I gotta get that! And Zach Wilde goes nuts! And he goes to the auction house. And he does, and he does, and he does this, what do they call those, the, 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 the online campaign? Fund me. He's a fund me. Fund me for the Rambam. Who could resist Zach Wilde saying, fund me for the Rambam? He's at the auction house. They say, $2,000, $20,000, $40,000. Zach Wilde stands up, he looks at them, he says, Rambam! A million dollars! And he raises a million dollars, and he gets this page handwritten. I have, by the way, seen the handwriting of the Rambam. He had beautiful handwriting. Okay? It was on display in the Israel Museum. I think it might still be. Okay? There was also a piece of it in, in, the, um, in the Gush Library for a while. And, and he gets this piece of Rambam. And he decides, you know what? Who better to give it to? So he, <laughs> so he comes on Purim, and he gets so drunk that he just does something ridiculous, and he gives me a page of the Rambam. Amazing. I've got this page handwritten of the Rambam. And then I see two guys, and they're sitting, and I don't know, speaking Lashon Hara. And I go nuts. And I say, Lashon Hara? In Yeshiva? Lashon Hara? Perak Zion in the Rambam? And I rip the piece to shreds and throw it at them. So you'd look at me like I was out of my mind. You know, like, can't teach anger management anymore. We've got to skip that halacha in the Rambam. What's going on here? But Moshe Rabbeinu is a Navi. He knows that there's an eagle down there. So why does he take the lucha with him? That's question number one. Question number two that you actually already have an answer to is how he can do what he did with the lucha. What does the Pasuk say? Right? When he came close. By the way, the word Vayahi, and it came to be, is a medrash at the beginning of, I forget if it's in, in Lech Lecha, or it's in Megillat Rut. I think it's actually in Megillat Rut, but I could be wrong. There's a medrash rabbi that says the word Vayahi always portends tragedy. Something difficult is going to happen. There are ten famines in all of Tanakh. Every single one of them starts with the words, they came. There's, it's, like, it's like when you're, you're when someone's telling a story or there's a radio show, they don't just say, and there was a famine, they say, and there was a famine in the land. Like, it doesn't sound good, you know. Dum, 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 right? They don't play that niggin when you're walking down to the chuppah, you know what I mean? Right? Bad, right? Um, and it was after these things, right? That's a difficult story, right? So, Vayehi, Kasher Karavala Machane, Moshe comes close to the camp. Vayaret Ha'egel, and he sees the calf. Umicholot, and he sees the tambourines, like they're having a party? Seriously? With the middle of sheer crawly up there, and you're having a party? Can you imagine? It's like Yom Kippur. What would you say if you had to pick the highest point, the single highest point on Yom Kippur? Right? Josh Levine. Single highest point on Yom Kippur. What would it be? Pardon? Kneel on the roof. We're in the middle of kneel on the roof. And all of a sudden I realize, oh wait, I gotta go to the bathroom. 
Okay, so I start a niggin, and I slip out while you're nigganizing so I can go to the bathroom. It's never happened. And I come down to go to the bathroom, and I find a few guys, and they're sitting in the back there, right? And as I walk to the bathroom, one of them says, puts down a card, says, Blackjack, right? Yeah! I go bananas! Can you imagine? I mean, I think, by the way, if Rav Noam walked into the back in the middle of the Elah, three guys were playing poker or blackjack, um, he would be acquitted from murder. <laughs> of course, how could you possibly control yourself? Right? It wouldn't be just a cherpa. Right? So, Moshe. Moshe becomes enraged. Shot in the puzzle. And he throws the luchot. I know they're midrashim. They leave his hands. Like when, when they lose their kedusha, they become heavy. The letters fly to heaven. It's all the midrashim. Pshat in the pasuk. He goes bananas. And he throws the luchot. And he breaks them beneath the mountain. And then there's a weird story. He burns it, makes us drink it. I'm not going to go there right now. So ask me another obvious question. Moshe goes down. Shh. Moshe goes down. He sees this terrible story and he completely loses it. And he breaks the luchot because he's angry. Oh, come on, ask me an obvious question. Rabban! What's going on? So Yona Bergman has chopped the question, right? It can't be, it can't be that Moshe Rabbeinu, in such an awe-inspiring moment, he's after 40 days of Harsinai, you know, it's like, it's, it's like you're on line at the airport in Poland, and you just came from Auschwitz, and somebody cuts the line. You wouldn't even notice he cut the line, like, big deal. Like, just, you know, 20 hours ago, you were talking about women and children being on a line and having to go to life or death, it wouldn't bother you. So if we can have that sensitivity after our low experience, could you imagine that Moshe Rabbeinu could forget all of the Hilchos Deus and the Rambam? Which, by the way, he knew in advance because he's Moshe Rabbeinu, right? <laughs> after 40 days on Harsinai. So how did we explain this in the Rambam? No? Oh. If we don't want to say that Moshe was angry, which would be difficult to say, Say Moshe recognized that the Jewish people needed to experience anger. And the Torah writes this because that's what we experienced. But obviously Moshe wasn't angry. You could definitely make a case for saying it. And then Moshe takes the tablets with them because he understands that the only message that's going to shock the Jews is to take the luchot that Hashem made and destroy them. Because if the Jewish people can be in an orderly of idolatry, then what's the point to having luchot? What is my relationship with Hashem worth if I can do that? Okay. But that's not even the biggest question. So what do you do? You have these broken luchot. And, you know, the 3,000 Jews who did it, they have to leave the Olamemes to find out their kapara somewhere else. They're, 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 they're killed. And the rest of the Jewish people have to do penance. And Moshe Benin says, we got to fix this. So he goes back. By the way, what day? What is the... Hebrew calendar date for this event that we're reading about? Shiva Sabatamas. This is the original day of infamy. 
the 17th of Tammuz. This is when brokenness enters the world. And that's why, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years later, uh, 3,200 years ago, so you're talking about 1,200 years later, give or take, right? 1,200 years later, the walls of Yerushalayim will be broken on this exact day. Brokenness. But we're not done yet. So Moshe Rabbeinu goes up for 40 days. And this is the famous, the things that we read, you know, the Yud Gimomidos, whatever. Right? Hashem Hashem, Kel Rachum V'chanun, Erech And these are the, this is the recipe for gaining forgiveness. And Bemet Moshe comes down 40 days later. What day, by the way, does he come down? He goes up on the 20th day of Tammuz. And he comes down 40 days later is what? No? 40 days later, he comes down. What does he come down with? Nothing. He comes down with forgiveness. You're forgiven. What, what, what starts the forgiveness cycle? Nah. Think about it. 20th day of Tammuz. What's the month after us? Why are you going to University of Texas? I don't know. Rosh Chodesh Elul. Right? Rosh Chodesh Elul. Right? And that's why the whole journey of tshuva begins with, with, with Rosh Chodesh Elul, with the beginning of the month of Elul. That's when we start blowing the shofar. But Moshe comes down... He's stopped the Jewish people from being destroyed. He's gained forgiveness. The Jewish people have gotten back to a certain place. But now we're back to where we started. We're at the foot of Sinai. We have no Luchot. We have no Torah. We're not there yet. We have to re... We have to get back up to where we were. So Moshe Rabbeinu goes up a third time. And again, he comes down 40 days later, which is Yom Kippur. And what does he bring with him? Second Luchot. And this time, this time, it's not such a bad ending. And you can see this, by the way. In, in Parashat Kitisa, in Paraklam and Dalid, right? the previous story is in Paraklam and Bet, and it leads up to what we read on the fast days. Paraklam and Dalid, chapter 34, verse 29, Pasuk Chavtet. When Moshe comes down off Har Sinai, so you think, and the two tablets of Tesla are in Moshe's hands. So you think we're talking about the same story, it's repeating itself. When he comes down from the mountain. Moshe doesn't know that his his face is lit up because 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 he's been up there for so long he's been connected to Hashem right they see his his, his face shines and then the Jewish people come close and he begins to tell them what he got on Arsina. So that can't be Kreta Ego. They're, they're learning. They open up a base Mendrish. So all the commentators explain this is the second set of Luchot. Right? And this is when he has to put on a veil and all that stuff. It's the end of the Parsha. Now it's not accidental that the end of the portion is this story because this is the happy ending. We come down on Yom Kippur, right? And by the way, what happens right after this event? Right? Vayakel Moshe, right? Parshat Vayakel, right? And Moshe gathers together the entire the entire Jewish people. And Rashi there says, Vayakel Lemacharat Yom Kippurim. This is the day after Yom Kippur. We got to figure out what to do now. We, we got a lot of fixing to do. Okay. So Moshe has his two sets of Luchot. The first one, written by God. Smashed to pieces. Ground to dust. The second ones, 
Moshe has to fashion them himself. And Moshe brings them down. Now, let's just think practically. And don't give me the, I know you, because we've been in a right for six months, I know you want us to say. Pshat! You're sitting with someone back in University of Texas, and they have very little Jewish background, because there aren't that many people in Texas. How many background? But okay, right? And, and you're learning Torah with him, which is the only reason I can think of to go to the University of Texas, okay, right? And you're learning Torah with him, right? And, and you ask, he asks an innocent question. Well, which are better? Which are holier? Now, this is not a difficult question, right? The ones written by God are the ones written by us. Obviously, the ones written by Hashem are, must be on a higher level because they're written by Hashem. So, how come those are the ones that get broken? Like, we could have done something else, by the way. We could have said that Moshe comes up to Mount Sinai and God says to him, write these things down. And that would make sense. He's dictating. And then Moshe comes down and he wrote the Luchot and he fashioned them and then he breaks them. So then he goes up on the third time when he goes up and God says, this time I'm going to make the Luchot. And God fashions the Luchot and these are the ones who come down and they represent forgiveness. And I could give you a fantastic sheer about how God is with us and God looks out for us but I can't give you that sheer because that's not what happens. So why are God's luchot broken? Now, one more thing. Then we can start to put this together. So the Gemara makes an interesting point. This is worth looking up. It's a very easy, simple line. It's Gemara in Baba Basra. On Daf. Uh, yes, that Baba Basra. Right? Gemara in Baba Basra is like this. It's the secret to marriage. Gemara in Baba Basra is on Daf Yudal Ramadalaf. Right? Tractate Baba Basra. On the 14th folio, okay? At the bottom of the first half of the page, okay? There's a whole discussion here about the Ark. And the Ark was taken by the Plishtim. They, they kind of took it in battle. They bring it back. And we get into the discussion of what's in the Ark. The Allah Sefer Torah Munach. So there's a Sefer Torah, there's an actual Torah scroll, the Chamishah Chamishah Torah, that was written, and it was put either in the Ark, on the Ark, or next to the Ark. Right? But not in it, according to this opinion. Right? The broken pieces of the Luchot were collected and they were put in the ark. They were put in the ark. And Rashi here points out, right, that, one second, let me find it. I apologize. Shivrei luchot shemunachin tachat haluchot. The broken pieces of luchot were placed under the luchot, under the new luchot. So this is really interesting. Why do we keep the broken luchot? Why do we keep the broken parts of the tablets? Think about this. This is like, you know, we once mentioned the fact that the two luchot, the two tablets, had five commandments on each side. And there are different opinions as to how to do this, but there is one opinion that says that you can learn a lot from where each of these commandments were placed. Right? So, on the right luach, on the right tablet, you have the mitzvot that are ostensibly the mitzvot between us and God. Anochi Hashem the obligation, I am God, to believe in God. 
Lo yelech alulim achrim al panai, the forbidden uh, idolatry. Lo tisat shem Hashem alokech alashav, you're not allowed to take God's name in vain, and so on. Right? On the other luach, those are all the mitzvot between man and man. Right? Social mitzvot. Lo tirtzach, not allowed to murder. Right? Lo tinaf, not allowed to adulter. Lo tignon, not allowed to steal. Not allowed to bear false testimony. Not allowed to covet. All about. But there is an idea that these two luchot relate to each other. So for example, the top of the first luach is I am God. The top of the second luach, the second tablet, is what's the sixth commandment? Pardon? Lotir Tzach. Because if you could murder another human being, then you've forgotten all about God. If you knew that a human being was created in the image of God, then you could never murder him. Right? What's the second Dibra, the second of the commandments on the first Luach, on the first tablet? Avodazara. Right? You have belief and then idolatry. What's the second tablet on the other one? Lotinaf, right? Adultery. Because idolatry is a form of adultery. Because if I could worship another God, then I'm cheating, as it were. I'm two-timing. I'm forgetting my relationship with Hashem. And adultery, by the way, is a form of idolatry. Because if you could adulter with someone, then you've lost sight of what the real goal is. Right? You're, you're stuck in what's the vehicle instead of what's the goal. Okay. So let's say, God forbid, a person makes this mistake. He gets married. He's in a marriage. He's in a wedding. And then he messes up and he adulters. And how does he get caught? Because the wife walks in on them and he's just giving to, to his mistress a beautiful vase. So she can't believe it. They're married only six weeks. She has a freak out. And she picks up the vase and takes it out of his hand. She throws it against the wall, smashes it. The mistress runs out hysterical. It's a bad scene. It takes them almost a year and they finally make up. Does she keep the broken pieces of the vase? I mean, that's the day you want to forget. What are the luchot doing there? What does it mean that the, that the broken luchot are in the same place as the luchot? So I want to tell you something. Something deep. There are two types of luchot that we carry with us. There is the luach that is whole. There's the tablet in our life that is whole, that is complete. And there is the tablet that is broken. Now, the Kutzker Rebbe said, there's nothing so whole in all the Jewish world as a broken heart. Sometimes, we bring to Hashem our brokenness. And the brokenness in this world is as powerful as the wholeness. That was my perception of Moshe Chaim Tiefenberg. Did you like how I did that? As I said that, the brokenness, you know, sometimes it's obvious. There, there are ways in which the world can break us. You know, you experience pain in your life. And you sometimes think that those moments of brokenness are going to break you. But the truth is, if you can hang on to that, if that becomes a part who you are and what you bring into the world, then that brokenness is part of your wholeness. You know? And I wonder if that's part of the message here. You can't forget the challenges in life that almost break you because those challenges that almost break you, those are the ones that build you. Now, it goes without saying that the luach that we're given by Hashem 
is not as powerful as the luach we make ourselves. And you sometimes wonder if the whole purpose of this whole story was to get this message. Think about this. Why does, and we'll finish with this, why does Chayta Ego happen? Why does the sin of the golden calf happen? You know? Moshe's up on the mountain 40 days. Doesn't happen on the first day. What day of those 40 days does it happen? 40th day. On the 40th day. And there's a whole discussion in Rashi. The, the Jews miscalculated like something went wrong. And the people see that Moshe tarries, maybe he's not coming down. There's something going on there. Now, who, by the way, was responsible for Chet Ego? Ah. Really? You think Aaron was responsible? Hashem runs the world. Let me ask you a question. Moshe's up on Mount Sinai. Ever wonder about this? Why does Moshe have to be up on top of Mount Sinai? To get the lucha, what Hashem couldn't give him the lucha in his tent? Why does Moshe Rabbeinu have to be up there for 40 days? Hashem couldn't figure out a way to give it to him in a day? Why do the Jewish people see this? What are they doing in Ash Sinai? The only reason they're in this space is because Hashem doesn't take them directly up there to Israel. It takes them all the way around. So they get to Ash Sinai because Hashem took them that way. Let me tell you something deep. You know where the Chet Egel happened? It happened because it was meant to happen. You know how I know it was meant to happen? Because it happened. We were meant to make this mistake. We were meant to experience it. We were meant to live it. How do I really know that? Because in the Torah. The Torah is not a book that happened because the Jewish people made it happen. The Torah was the plan of Hashem from the time it was created, from the time the world was created, and before. We were meant to experience this. We were meant to see Luchot created by Hashem, destroyed. We were meant to learn that if the luchot are going to last, we have to make them. But that doesn't mean that we should forget the brokenness that comes from God. We come to Hashem with both those things. We come to Hashem with Koma Medina, with the state of Israel, and we come to Hashem with the Holocaust. We come with the wholeness, and we come with the brokenness. We come to Hashem with the day your child is born and you come to Hashem with the day the child is broken. And all of that is part of our Vodas Hashem. And that is Kitisa. That's what this parasha is all about. That's how you build a Mishkan. You build a tabernacle on earth with both the brokenness and the wholeness. Now that's the essence of the idea. You have to figure out how to make that idea yours. And I'll just finish with one last piece. The world is going through a very difficult time. It is unbelievable what's going on in the world. There's a, there's a pandemic. Most of us, myself included, have never experienced anything like this. There's a fellow in my show who was in quarantine for six months during the polio pandemic in New Zealand in 1940. He still remembers it. He said it's blowing his mind that the world is going through this. Up until now, the pandemics that existed in the world were in China, they were in Africa. This is the first time pandemic is affecting the entire world. I saw today in the newspapers that uh, they saw satellite imagery. They're digging huge ditches around the cemetery in Tehran. And they think because of this that they're not being truthful about how many people are dying in Iran from, 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 from corona. We have no idea where this is going. Hashem is stirring the pot, you know? There's a lot of brokenness coming into the world. And it's interesting that whatever happens in the world is a message for what needs to be fixed. 
What ultimately is happening in the world right now, people are being split apart. People are being forced into isolation. People are told they can't come here, they have to stay there, we're being separated. And if the, if the world is creating separation, if Hashem is giving up a message that something's wrong, we're being separated, what is the obvious thing that we need to do to fix that? You need to learn how to come together. Do not underestimate the power. Do not underestimate the power of what you did tonight, of what it is to be that together. That is absolutely what this world needs. This world, there's so many broken people in this world. There's so many broken people in this world. And Judaism is a recipe of wholeness. And that's our challenge, is how to share that. So, that's a little... Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 